This is Writing Excuses, Artificial Intelligence with Nancy Folda. Fifteen minutes long because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Howard. And the part of Dan this week will be played by a kitten slowly being uplifted. (laughs) 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 So... Uh, Nancy, you have a little bit of experience with artificial intelligence. Uh, yeah, about two years of experience. In fact, I my master's degree uh, was in computer science, and my research area was artificial ex- uh, intelligence, uh, specifically cooperative learning agents. So the question was, if you have one um, one little artificially intelligent bot and another little artificially intelligent bot, but you don't allow them to directly communicate with each other, you force them to be somewhat like human beings who have to infer internal states based on external information like speech or other signals, how do you get those two agents to cooperate to perform a reinforcement task? Wow. And it turns out to be a very, very I'm difficult sorry, that sounds, problem. That actually sounds like a parenting problem. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I have written blog posts about how extremely uh, pertinent my mm-hmm. research area was to the act of attempting to raise small children. <laughs> now, wow. we're going to probably throw just a bunch of questions yeah. at you I'm on this like, one sure. and to make a resource for our listeners who may be dealing with artificial intelligence. Um, and the first one that, uh, as a layman, I ask is, how close are we? You know, artificial intelligence is a moving target. Mm-hmm. By, uh, by social definition, we tend to define artificial intelligence as things computers can't do yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you go back about 50 years, the, the, the epitome of artificial intelligence was chess-playing computers, a mm-hmm. very complex task, something difficult that people thought computers couldn't do. Of course, you know, we've now gone through Deep Blue and a bunch of other situations. Chess is no longer considered a true artificial intelligence because mm-hmm. they brute, the computers brute force their way through it instead of working as an actual human chess master. Uh, when I say no longer considered, I mean in the public perception, right? Mm-hmm. Like most people wouldn't say that uh, a chess-playing computer, at least it's my perception, that most people wouldn't right. say that a chess-playing computer is actually artificially sentient, actually thinking right. or anything like that. Yeah. Nevertheless, if you go back far enough in the timeline, people would have said that a computer that could play chess would be. Um, so well, I if have you go n- far enough back in the timeline, they would be worshipping the talking metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So asking, um, asking how far away we are is really useless unless you actually have a firm definition of what uh-huh. task is considered yeah, the to Turing, be artificial intelligence. The Turing intelligence. test uh, got bandied about a lot during the you know, 80s and 90s when mm-hmm. I was reading about these sorts of things. And I think it was 2002 when somebody took the old Eliza engine, mm-hmm. updated the vocabulary, plugged it into AOL Instant Messenger, and told it to go chat with people. I remember that. And... Yeah, according to the article, most people most people had complete conversations with this with no idea that they were talking to a robot, which passes the, the Turing, Turing test. test yeah. Well, well, as far as I understand that, the one thing that they did, uh, at least I, I read about the ICQ uh, chat once, mm-hmm. they updated the vocabulary to include a lot of profanity and derogatory terms, which demonstrates that as soon as people start... Uh, getting insulting on the internet like people would have huge arguments with this thing you know and it would call them names back and they would call it names uh, <laughs> and, and so I, I find myself very curious um, whether the the one that you saw Howard whether it's they the t- were using the profanity or whether it was actually passing as a human with people right. who weren't you it's, know all up the, on the red scale of it's anger. the Turing Godwin <laughs> test <laughs> 
Oh my yeah. goodness. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. So the question it can't be how, how close are we? Um, what I want, I mean, if you if you want a definition, I want to know when we can have data. That's when we what can I have want. data. When do we get data? When the positronic systems have been developed. Oh, we well, need positronic hardware. <laughs> it, it is it is in many senses. Okay, this is an When can we have Jarvis? Jarvis in uh, Tony Tony Stark's Iron Man suit. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, the personal assistant that he there just talks go, yeah. to, and the personal assistant does stuff, and the personal assistant usually knows when to interrupt him and when not to. Yeah. And you know, I was uh, John Scalzi, I think, tweeted this or, at one point that he knew that we were living in the future when he got annoyed with his phone because it didn't understand him. <laughs> and yeah. he expected it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we're all. I mean, that's the. Th- that's one of the things that Nancy is talking about about the, yeah. the moving target. We already have a lot of things that are artificial intelligence systems, mm-hmm. but because they are, it's like, oh well, you know, yeah. that that's just a computer making uh, choices from you know, like the the the, the telephone trees that everybody mm-hmm. hates so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much like stage magicians. As soon Mm -hmm. as you know how it's done, it does not seem magical anymore. And Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence is very much the same way. If you understand that you're talking to a phone system that's running through a a fairly simple tree uh, of questions and answers, Mm -hmm. suddenly it does not seem magical anymore. Mm -hmm. Although someone who did not, had never spoken to an artificial phone system would probably interpret that a lot differently because of how much they would project their own identities Mm -hmm. onto the technology that they're interacting with. But um, hardware turns out to be really important in systems like mm-hmm. this. Because like seriously, you know, it comes across like a joke, but if you don't have a positronic brain that can do the things that data's positronic brain can do, you're gonna have a really hard time creating a data. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my pet theories about true, I'm making air quotes that you can't see, true they artificial intelligence, <laughs> that's what I thought, is that uh, it's probably not going to be based on electronics. If you look through the literature, um, I, I did a literature search on this once. It's fascinating. If you go back, uh, yeah, to like the 1950s and 60s, the artificially intelligent systems then were atomic powered. Oh, if you go back even further, you find stories about steam-powered artificial intelligences. And if you go back even even further, then, of course, it was uh, statues or clockwork right. mechanisms. Right. So apparently. When humanity writes stories about artificial intelligence, we tend to project the current most modern technology known as the likely uh, as the likely hardware mm-hmm. for artificial intelligence to evolve upon. Right. I'm thinking we don't have the right hardware yet, and so if artificial intelligence ever really happens, it will probably be based on a system of mechanics or uh, or manipulation, data manipulation that we don't yet have. Hmm. That's hmm. A- Greg Bear's uh, blood music. Uh, mm-hmm. from the 80s, actually, uh, postulates the accidental development of artificial intelligence in uh, genetically modified white blood cells. Oh, cool. Very catastrophic <laughs> when they start colonizing. Mm. Um, but, the, but that was the... Uh, and you know, how, how then is artificial intelligence different from uplift? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where do you, where do you draw the line between, well, we uplifted the white blood cells to become a, a brain. A, right. I have no idea where that line is. Yeah. I, when I deal with it in my own fiction, I, I divide the line and it's completely arbitrary, but I say that I have, um, artificial savants, which are basically the artificial intelligences that we have today. Siri. Yeah, yeah. Siri. And uh, and artificial intelligence, 
which is something that is self-aware and with a personality. Mm. But, but even that, it's like, how do you judge from mm-hmm. the outside when something is self-aware and has a personality yeah. versus when it's just going through the motions? Right, and how much of what we do is based on our programming. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I mean, what, where is that line? This is what science fiction explores. Let's stop for our book of the week, and then we'll dig into this some more. Howard, you were going to give us our book of the week. I certainly was, and then I changed my mind. Um, no, oh. I still am. Um, <laughs> Rainbow's End, uh, and that's Rainbow's with the apostrophe after the S, which is actually a plot point in the story. Uh, Rainbow's End by Werner Vinge is near-future science fiction about, um, well, among other things, uh, about a horrible man who uh, developed Alzheimer's late in life. Uh, None of his family members like him. He's been in a home. He's been decrepit. And right about the time he would die, the technological pieces come together to cure his Alzheimer's, to restore... Uh, physical function, um, and he finds himself, he finds himself, you know, a 25-year Buck Rogers sort of scenario where he is waking up to a future uh, that is very, very different from the one that uh, that he last remembered. Um, it is near-future sci-fi that addresses all of these things. It talks about uh, it talks about the evolution of of things like Siri, um, uh, about artificial intelligence, about the ubiquity of the electronic devices that we carry. Um, you know, nowadays you might say, ask people, hey, you know, do you have a smartphone? You know, or do you have, wave at somebody, do you have the internet on you? <laughs> um, and the term in, uh, in this book is, are you wearing? Hmm. Because your clothing would be smart. You're, you know, everybody is, everybody's wearing. Why aren't you wearing? What's wrong with you? Hmm. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful book written in 2006. I was very worried that as somebody from 2013, uh, I would look back at it and and it would not have held up well. It's held up really, really well. And if this is the sort of thing that you are interested in, I strongly recommend mm-hmm. reading Rainbow's End by Werner Vinge, or better yet, having it read to you. Audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Start a 30-day free trial membership and you can get Rainbow's End for free. Werner Vinge is one of the best writers of science fiction, just mm-hmm. hands down, in my opinion, out there. Or yep. ever to I, have been I out met there. him at uh, at Conjecture, and we had some fun and amazingly fascinating sorts of conversations. Um, and I had to shake my fist at him at one point because mm-hmm. I said, "You know, I'm writing science fiction that's set a thousand years in the future, and it's a future that looks a lot like today because I'm writing satire." And regularly, readers of mine will say. This doesn't really seem realistic. I mean, you've read Werner Vinge, haven't you? You know, what about the singularity? <laughs> Mr. Vinge, you've ruined it for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so speaking about things like that, I have a question. Are there things that people do with AI that, as an expert in the field, Nancy, bother you? Are there pitfalls our writers can fall into um, and the advice you can give them on how to stay away from that? Oh, that's a big one. Um... Put me on the spot. Okay, if you want me, <laughs> Mary I, had something, and yeah, you can think for a minute. All well, right, well, that's this good because this will this will narrow it down. Um, so one thing that that I see people do, and and some people complain about, is the anthropomorphizing of the AI. Mm. Mm. Um, and one argument goes that AIs would be so vastly different from us that presenting them as human-like in any way, shape, or form is unrealistic. Mm. 
and the other school of thought, and, and I will admit that I am in this camp, is that any system that is intelligent enough to know that it is interacting with humans will model itself around interacting with humans. And we anthropomorphize toasters mm -hmm. <laughs> and cars. So anthropomorphizing AI in the future seems like that's just how things would work. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense on whether or not, like how, how the anthropomorphizing of AI would, would play out if we actually get something that's smarter than Siri? Um, I think it would end up being a very, very similar to the way we interact with people. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how it is for most people, but for me as a teenager, I had very clear ideas about what was going on in everybody else's head. I always <laughs> understood what they really meant. Always. It was magic. The older I got, the more I became aware that there was actually more than one possible internal state which could be resulting in the actions that I was observing. The older I've become, the less confident I feel that I really know what's going on inside the people I talk to at all. I think artificial intelligence and people's interactions and anthropomorphizations. <laughs> That's one of those words that, that just grows I can, too long. I yes. can spell it. I can spell it. Um, I believe that in the early stages, people will think that they understand. Hmm. And then it will be a process very much hmm. like getting to know a person. As you get to know, as you become familiar with artificial intelligent, artificially intelligent systems, you will begin to realize that there's a lot more happening there than your anthropomorphization allowed. You know, I have something that I can say on this that actually is a compliment to Howard. Um, a while back I was, I was reading Howard's comic and he has a lot of AIs. They're part of the whole story and I, they are just vastly superior intellect-wise to human beings. Petey. And it's always been this kind of interesting contrast when they are so smart and yet they act like super smart people. Um, in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm like, is this how it would really be? I was interacting with one of my really smart friends who will remain unnamed. But we're, you know, we're talking um, genius level IQ. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that this friend in talking to me and other normal people talked like a normal person. He had learned to pass, yeah. so mm -hmm. to speak. And when he interacted with someone else, hyper intelligence, suddenly the conversation ratcheted up. They, they started talking faster. They started stop finishing sentences because they saw that the other person understood. They started making really oblique references that were one word and both laughing. And I was, it was like watching people starting to speak German or something like this. And I thought, he has learned to underclock himself mm -hmm. when interacting with other people. This is exactly what Howard's AIs do. Howard got it right. <laughs> well, and I made that joke fairly recently where uh, uh, Paraventura um, appears inside of Ennisby's mm -hmm. head. She's trying to she's trying to give him therapy because he's got <laughs> he's got a mental issue. Um, and he looks at her and says, well, how are you even doing that? This environment moves, you know, a thousand mm -hmm. times faster than, you know, my clock speed, you know, mm -hmm. ticks thousands of times faster than, and Para holds up a broken clock. He says, you mean this clock? Welcome to the glacier of meat think. Mm. Um, <laughs> what she has done is she has, you know, messed with his hardware and forced him to slow down. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember looking at it and thinking, wow, an AI who is insane and the insanity is progressively degrading his function, how would you cure that? Well, the first thing I would do is ice him. 
Mm-hmm. Find a way to slow him down so he's not thinking himself into a hole. Mm-hmm. Um, did I get that right? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea because I don't know what their brains are made of. But I'm pretending that, <laughs> that the clock is a thing. Although I am, I'm actually considering footnoting that and mm-hmm. saying, okay, I know Para is holding a clock because that's a convenient metaphor. There isn't a single clock. There's actually 63 different systems that Para had to tune in order to make mm-hmm. this work. And because she's really good at it, she got it right. And then I have to find a way to write that footnote so it's funny and not angry at my readers. <laughs> See, that works. Well, if, if artificial intelligence is based on electronics, I think it's fairly safe to say it will probably have at least one clock. Because I can't mm-hmm. figure out any way to make electronics work without a clock. So I think you got it right. There was a... Um, uh, project done, gosh, this is 15 years old, where they built some, uh, built some very small, like four chip, uh, little chips, like the, the old TI-555 timers. Mm-hmm. Very small computers that were hooked up to something that allowed them to, uh, program themselves. Okay? Mm. I say program themselves. A computer was programming this chip to perform, uh, mathematical operations. And they ran evolutionary algorithms where they said, okay, mess with it randomly. And if you come up with something that does it faster, great. If it does it slower, that's okay. If it doesn't solve the problem at all, throw it out. Mm -hmm. And what they found after millions and millions and millions of iterations is that the little timer chips were solving the mathematical operation in fewer steps than was electronically possible via the logic gates they had access to. Mm-hmm. Okay? It, it was impossible for a human being to program that chip. So they took the code on one chip and tried to run it on another chip, and it failed to do any operation at all. The evolutionary programming had determined that it's not just logic gates, you know, and, or, on, off, whatever. There are voltage states in between mm. these switches that vary per chip, and the evolutionary learning algorithm figured out how to exploit that. And so when you say, well, it might not be electronics, I think, you know, it might be electronics, but, but it might be so hardware specific mm-hmm. that if it breaks, it is absolutely impossible for us to fix it. We just yeah. have to throw the brain that's away. That's a fantastic yeah. idea, though. That's like, well, that's, that's yeah. the way the mm-hmm. AI system in my, my universe is yep. built. Right. You, it mm-hmm. has to be on a chassis, and it has to be on a chassis specific to that model. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's... I mean, and now I, you know why. <laughs> I, I I knew why, but thank you. Okay. <laughs> now everybody else knows, knows why. why yes. yes. No, it's interesting that you brought I can up. It. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you brought up evolutionary learning algorithms because this may actually be interesting for listeners to talk about in the realm of electronics. What are the the basic? Well, we are running a little oh, long time. It. We can okay. give you like some final words, but we've got like thirty seconds left. Okay, go to the internet. Look up Bayesian learning, neural networks, and genetic algorithms. And those words will all be correctly spelled in the liner notes. Yes. So now Nancy has given you pretty much a writing prompt. All right. And has given me a writing prompt, which is to figure out how to spell those. (laughs) (laughs) This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. 
Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 